The reading is from Luke chapter 20, verses 19 until chapter 21, verses 4. And it's on page 1055. Not on the page. <laughs> Please bear with me. <laughs> it's not on the page. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Natalie. Okay. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them, but they were afraid of the people. Keeping a close watch on him, they sent spies who pretended to be sincere. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said so that they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. So the spies questioned him. Teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right and that you do not show partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? He saw through their duplicity and said to them, Show me a denarius, whose image and inscriptions are on it. Caesar's, they replied. He said to them, then give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. They were unable to trap him in what he had said there in public, and astonished by his answer, they became silent. Some of the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children... The man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died childless. The second and then the third married her. And in the same way the seven died, leaving no children. Finally the woman died too. Now then at the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, the people of this age are married and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage. And they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. They are God's children, since they are children of the resurrection. But in the account of the burning bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise. For he calls them Lord, the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for to him all are alive. Some of the teachers of the law responded, Well said, teacher, and no one dared to ask him any more questions. Then Jesus said to them, Why is it said the Messiah is the son of David? David himself declares in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. David calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? While all the people were listening, Jesus said to his disciples, Beware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes, and love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues 
and the places of honour at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. As Jesus looked up, he saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. Truly, I tell you, he said, this poor widow is put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Please keep your Bibles open so we continue to learn from the passage. Sound will stop fairly soon. And as they grow, let me just uh, encourage you today, um, perhaps more than any other day, is going to throw up perhaps lots of questions from the things I say. So please be unafraid to ask questions. There'll be stuff going on, and you might want to have a little notebook handy, always handy, uh, to take notes because it just kind of helps you to remember maybe a bit more. And as you do that, jot down your questions or try and remember them somehow and we'll have an uh, opportunity afterwards to think about them. Now, we prayed, so uh, we'll get going. And I wonder if I could ask you, how would you complete that sentence? What would you write underneath that sentence, God hates? Now, you might think you could put Hitler there or you could put sin and sinners there, but here's the proper stained glass conclusion, he hates religion. Now actually we saw that last week when we looked at uh, Luke chapter 19 verse 45 and we saw Jesus chucking out uh, people uh, who were religious in the temple because they were making a profit um, and uh, that's what they were in the temple to do. And so he ends up describing the most religious temple in the world as a den of robbers. Now the thing to get hold of is if Jesus said that of the Jewish religion, which is the best religion in the world, because in the end uh, God had started it, but it had lost its way, if that's what Jesus says of that religion, it's what he says of all religions. And we're going to see this week four reasons why he hates not just the Jewish religion, but all religions. And we're going to see them in those four little areas. We'll get to them each one by one. First, he hates religion because it disobeys God's authority. It's funny that, isn't it? You'd expect me to say that religion obeys God's authority. It doesn't. Now you get that coming out through this uh, trap question that they ask in verses 20 to 26 of chapter 20. And the trapped question is that get Jesus into trouble because everyone hated paying the Romans their taxes. So if Jesus is too positive about, yeah, let's do that, they would immediately 
have uh, not liked him very much for siding with the opposition. Equally, if Jesus had stood back a little bit and was slightly iffy and reserved and reluctant, then that would have landed him in hot water with the Romans. What is this guy trying to do? Start a rebellion against us? Now, their logic in our question is, look, we're Jewish people, we're God's people, and therefore we are not Caesar's people. Why should we pay him taxes? And the answer Jesus gives, render to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's, that's not just a clever answer because it gets him out of trouble. It's actually a brilliant answer because it addresses the heart. It shows that they don't really want to obey God because Caesar's coin had Caesar's image. So therefore it belonged to Caesar. But you, or human life, have God's image stamped on us. So therefore, render to God what is God's. Jesus puts the two together, render to Caesar and render to God. It's all part of submitting to the authority of God. They're not willing to pay taxes to Caesar, but then they're not willing to surrender to God either, to honor Jesus the way that they should. They weren't giving to God the honor that was his due. And so, what Jesus is revealing to us is the only reason you want to obey the Romans because actually their rebellion starts with not wanting to submit to God. Yeah, sure, we should uh, clash with uh, human authority if it tells us to do specifically what God tells us not to. But there isn't a clash here. Caesar isn't stopping them serving God. And so they can serve him as part of serving God. Because those who understand things correctly understand that even the pagan Roman Empire and Caesar come under God's authority. And so under submission to God they can submit to him. The only reason why people don't want to submit subdued to governing authority is because in the end they don't want to subdue to God either. So when you look at uh, little um, uh, separate uh, bids for um, uh, your own authority, like for example wanting Sharia law, it is really a way of saying, well I don't believe that God is authoritative enough over the state. I mean I've got to put in my own laws. Um, because I don't think God actually controls absolutely everything. It's a way of rejecting God to uh, think in that way uh, rather than to uh, obey him. So the first thing that religion does is it disobeys God and his authority. The second thing it does is it denies a future beyond death. You see that in verses 27 and 40 with these Sadducees who do not believe in the resurrection. There's no future as far as they're concerned. It's all in this life. I suppose you could say they're social workers with a religious badge. That's all that they want to be. And it's just like the church liberals today who say, we're not really too fussed about the future. Let's be nice to each other now. That's the only thing that counts. And what these guys do is they think that they're very, very bright um, and therefore they mock Jesus 
with a little scenario that they get out of their Bibles. Uh, in an era when land was really important, Moses had told people in the book of Deuteronomy, if a person dies without leaving a son and heir, then his wife can marry his brother and raise up a child with the, with the dead brother's name so that the brother's land stays in the family and doesn't get lost. So that was a, a, a concession that, you, uh, that Moses made to um, uh, keep uh, families uh, secure uh, in their property. But uh, uh, these uh, guys uh, decide that they would have some fun with that little provision. And so they go on to describe the widow who has uh, seven brothers. And they die one after the other after marrying her. If that was me, I'd be a, li I'd be a little bit sort of uh, twitchy at the, at the sixth funeral if I, if I was the seventh brother. Uh, but um, whose wife? The seventh brother dies, she dies. So whose wife is she going to be after the resurrection? And Jesus points out that they don't know marriage and they don't know Bible. They don't know marriage because marriage, get this big time, is not about companionship. It is about kids. So if no one's dying and therefore no one needs to be reproduced, then you don't need marriage. Now, those of us who are married and who like the companionship that marriage brings might be a bit worried at this stage that we're going to miss the closeness that we had with our spouses. But I wonder if when Jesus tells us in verse 36, they are like the angels, what that means, perhaps, is that we'll have the kind of closeness that we presently have with one person, but we'll have that with everyone. He's describing, if you like, the fellowship of heaven. So when Jesus actually says in verse 36 that we will be like God's children, surely that means that we are not going to have a lesser experience than the closeness we have now. Because if we are God's children, then there's going to be a greater connection, isn't there? It doesn't have to be sex to get us close. So we don't understand marriage if we start thinking, well... There's got to be that closeness. Certainly they didn't understand the whole point of preserving the land because in heaven you wouldn't need any land preserved through that kind of marriage system. But you certainly wouldn't need kids either, which is really what marriage is all about. I can understand if you've got questions about that, ask uh, when that time comes. But they didn't understand marriage. Secondly, they didn't understand Bible. Because what Jesus says is they can believe in the resurrection because of something that God said to Moses. When God spoke to Moses, 
and spoke about all the patriarchs as if they were still alive. If you look at verse 37, you see God describing himself as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. In other words, he is their God at the same time, even though they have died and are off the scene by the time God spoke to Moses, God still describes them as their God. In other words, he hasn't stopped being their God. And so, in verse 38, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And if only these guys would not try and play games with the Bible and try to make themselves look clever by making jokes out of the Bible and what about these seven men and their dead wife? Instead of trying to play games with the Bible to prove their point, if they only really understood what the Bible was telling through Moses, the person they're quoting on the, the fun and games passage, if only they actually listened to what Moses had said properly, they'll know the truth about the future. And it's interesting, it's easy, isn't it? Ask Christians today, we can believe in the resurrection, not because Jesus came back from the dead. We can believe in the resurrection because of what God said to Moses centuries ago. Just like the Jews could believe in, Mo in resurrection because of uh, what uh, God has said to Moses in their Bibles. But, of course, it doesn't suit. If you don't want uh, future accountability with God, of course you don't want in the end to believe that there will be a future with him. Thirdly, religion doesn't think. Look at verses 41 to 44. Uh, Jesus is talking about uh, something that um, uh, King David had uh, written in Psalm 110. And in the book of the Psalms, Psalm 110 to be precise, David addresses God as Lord, and he also addresses one of his descendants as my Lord. So, put this in your pipe and smoke it, there's going to be one of David's descendants who David refers to with the same, in the same way he refers to God himself. Someone's going to come down the track who's part of the family of David who is as God, as David's Lord. But it's possible, isn't it, to read the Bible, to read Psalm 110 in Jewish services in the temple, but never to really stop and think about what it's saying. And in lots of religious services, the Bible is read, but then the preacher goes on to say what he wants to say without really showing the greatness of Jesus out of what the Bible itself is saying. And if we don't stop and think about the Bible, the big casualty is we will stop understanding the greatness of Jesus. And if we just simply skate over the Bible and read it and leave it there and not think, then 
we're going to miss out on his uh, amazing glory. And that's what religion does. It reads the Bible all right, but it never stops to really consider how great Jesus is as it does so. And then lastly, it disguises self-love. Yes, here are these uh, teachers of the law in verse 46. They'll say they want to teach the law. They want to get people to think well of God. But really what's on show is their own greatness. Well, we've had a visual aid already, haven't we? Of uh, the long robes, the robes of office. You can spot the VIP from uh, miles away. And if the robes are off, well, generally there's usually a dog collar on to show the status. And if the dog collar is off because it's not your particular kind of church, well, the smart suit will be on. The greetings are deferential, and there are the titles that go with the greeting. Uh, the pastor, reverend, father. Some people even almost sort of bow one, one knee as they shake the pastor's hand. And the pastor loves it. When I went to uh, uh, college, um, <coughs> I had a personal interview with the principal because uh, he did that with all his students. And I said, uh, excuse me, I'm new to this sort of thing. Uh, what should I call the principal of a theological college? Should I call you sir? What should I call you? And he said, Mike, I'm David. Christian names amongst Christian brothers. Now, on Wednesday, our Bible study group, if you come, we'll understand what it means to give the elder double honor. Uh, that's part of the passage we're studying on Wednesday evening. And uh, it's certainly important that those who trust the Bible, uh, who teach the Bible, um, are valued. Uh, don't want to deny that. But uh, you'll also see that actually they can be sinful. Now they are brothers like anybody else. And we can double honor brothers uh, in their goodness to us. Uh, and uh, be uh, uh, humble in all our relationships. But more of that on Wednesday. What about these special seats? Well, seating plans are always important, aren't they? Public functions have the top table, and uh, churches have uh, top seats uh, uh, set apart for the ones who matter. Even in Dagenham Parish Church Hall, where our church uh, met, and I didn't think there would be anything fancy about that. And I was uh, invited to a service there by the church that uses it. And I sat at the back by the, by the door because I'd just arrived and I could see a seat. And I was immediately propelled and taken to the front. Even in an ordinary church hall, there's a special seat uh, reserved for some people. Uh, what about uh, widows and devouring their houses? You might have wondered what they... Uh, might be doing that. But widows are meant to be on the receiving end of care in the Bible. But if you care for them, because in the end, you're rather hoping that they might leave you their house, then care isn't really care, is it? And long prayers. 
are there to show off the special relationship with God. These guys know what to say to God and their words to him are impressive. And it's another way of attracting attention to yourself. The punchline, please note in verse 47, is that these men will be punished most severely. And if you see someone dressed as George is dressed at the moment, um, and there are some people who do dress like that, not because they want to, but because they have to in a particular situation, that would be different. But if they rather enjoy uh, the opportunity to uh, be different, to stand out in that kind of way, just remember, here is someone who will be punished most severely. And that will help us to keep our perspective um, and uh, to um, uh, pray for them, uh, but not to uh, follow them. So, first, there's four reasons then in that passage as to why Jesus hates religion. And then there's this last little bit in chapter 21, which is the one thing that God loves, which is simple devotion to him. Now you see she's described as a poor widow in verse 2. Let me tell you, the special word used for poor is the only time it is used here. Poor is mentioned quite a lot in the New Testament, but this particular word for poor, it's the only time you will see it here in the whole New Testament. In other words, she is the poorest person in the whole of the New Testament that you could find. And she's got uh, the equivalent, a denarius may not be something that... Uh, uh, you'll immediately uh, get an exchange rate for in uh, Google. But uh, let me tell you uh, what she's got. Her whole worldly possessions amount to £2.50. And she puts all of it in. It's her way of saying, isn't it, that God is absolutely everything to her. And it's actually a preview of what Jesus is going to do at the end of this week when he will give everything out of his devotion to his father and in her devotion to him in giving as sacrificially as she does she is showing us two things isn't she first she is showing great trust in him and she's showing that actually it's no risk to give everything to God because he knows how to look after his own. Giving and trusting go together if we're giving as the widow does. But secondly, she's giving to the gospel. She's giving in the temple. The temple is the place where God is meant to be revealed to the nations. And what she wants to do is to be slightly involved in her little way to the most that she can be involved. She wants to be involved in this great God being revealed to the others um, uh, that uh, the temple uh, existed to serve. 
Now, I'm not saying that uh, we're going to pass the plate around at the end of service and you can empty your whole bank account into it, please. Uh, we're not uh, saying that. But it is worth saying, isn't it, that the place where you notice real devotion to God is at the temple treasury. That's when you begin to understand the depth of someone's understanding of uh, the God who devoted himself to them. Well, what's to take home from all of this? Well, if you're new to church and Christianity, I wouldn't be surprised if you've had bad experiences uh, of, uh, from past encounters with religion and you hate it. Um, Catherine and I were on a doorstep this afternoon and we met somebody who uh, uh, described how uh, he and his family were uh, all locked into a church um, and then the person in charge of the church left with the money and with someone in the congregation. Um, and uh, so he said, well, they're all hypocrites, aren't they? And uh, the conversation started there. Now, the thing to remember with religion is that Jesus hates it too. But the important thing is not to throw out the baby with the bathwater and then you leave up, end up with nothing in its place. Now, certainly hate religion, but be devoted to the Lord Jesus because he is absolutely devoted to you. He gave up everything for you. So, be devoted to him. If you've knocked around church circles before, well, one of the things that we tend to do, it may not, maybe that you've never had an upfront row in a church yourself, but I wonder if in the quiet recesses of your heart, you find yourself envious of the people who have those roles and we might like to, the opportunity to stand out and impress people with our leadership I'm certainly not exempt from that I'd love to be a really good church leader that everybody could say well uh, that church leader knows how to do it properly now I've got to be careful wanting leadership roles wanting to be the master class preacher, the one who uh, is God's answer to a community, uh, that carries risks with it. Especially when Jesus says, these men will be punished most severely. Because there's always an element of self-promotion that uh, is uh, reckless if Jesus says that. Now it's very interesting that uh, uh, the Apostle Paul, as the model leader, doesn't uh, stand up and tell people uh, what uh, a great leader he is uh, and parading his own greatness the way that these teachers of the Lord do in Luke chapter 20. If you just glance at uh, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, and let me take you to page 1153, page 1153, 
2 Corinthians chapter 12. <coughs> Sorry? Sorry, yes, all right, I'll move it. Thank you. Uh, I'm wanting 2 Corinthians 12, which is 1166. You're absolutely right. Page 1166. And here's Paul, uh, who is uh, the model church leader. And see what he says in chapter 12, verse 9. 2 Corinthians. Uh, Paul says, uh, sorry, Paul reports what God said to him. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, says Paul, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that God's power may rest on me. Uh, the model church leader is not the one who says, here's me, uh, take a good look. Uh, here's me. Uh, see how I struggle. Far more likely to get you the authentic church leader than the one who parades his greatness in front of you. Thirdly, so yes, uh, leadership is uh, weakness. Lastly, what happens if you want to grow your devotion to God rather than your religion? What can we learn about that? Well, my friend, there is only one place that reveals what your heart is really like and you've seen where it is. It's the treasury. The widow wanted the greatness of God to be known. That's where uh, uh, the temple was there to do. And so she was giving to the work of the gospel. Incidentally, not to the minister's pocket. Now, that's not easy for us to hear that it's in our giving that we reveal where our devotion really is. Because by and large, we live in a very materialistic world, especially in our culture here, and we breathe in the air of materialism. Now, the thing about air is you can't see it. So it's invisible to us, but we're breathing it in all the time. And so therefore, our concern is that our money is all us for us to uh, spend as we will. And we don't see that the greatness of money is that we can use it uh, for maximum effect uh, on the gospel. Now, it's interesting isn't it, how in a church we've had discussions about this in the past, and uh, it has, I think, been said, well, we can't give when we don't earn. Now, can you see how this passage comments on that, com on, on, on that, on that uh, conviction? It means, ultimately, that we want to give out of our wealth, in verse 4. The others gave gifts out of their wealth. So when we get the wealth, we'll give the gifts. That way of thinking, I'll get and then I'll give, it's just so that I can give out my wealth. That's what I want to do. Just like the others were giving in the temple. But the difference with this lady is that she wanted to give. 
So even when she didn't have wealth and income, she gave. You see, ultimately, devotion is a heart thing and not an income thing. It comes out of wanting to give. That's the bottom line. Money exposes what our heart really wants. So, for example, if we eat out more than we give to the gospel, it shows that we'd rather eat out than give to the gospel. It's not rocket science, is it? Oh, religious people probably give more in verse 1. The rich were putting their gifts into the temple treasury. Let me tell you that uh, you needed them to balance the temple budget. What the widow gave in wouldn't have kept the temple going. But it's her giving that he notices. Because her giving shows her devotion to God and her desire to trust him and her desire to see him made known to others. Because ultimately she understood how God was devoted to her. And that's why she could trust him. And that's why she wanted other people to find out about him as well. When our devotion is seen at the treasury, then maybe we'll understand the devotion that God has to us and uh, <clears throat> trust it and want others to experiencing it too. Let's pray that God will help us to do that and then we'll have some questions after that. Uh, Father in heaven, thank you for telling us how religion is poisoning our world against knowing how great the Lord Jesus is. Please forgive us where we have been self-promoting and self-serving and keep in front of our eyes your devotion to us so we may dev be devoted to you, trusting you and wanting your devotion to be made known to others as well. And we pray this for the glory of your name. Amen. Mm -hmm.